Would you turn in your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Luke chapter 4? With the Lord's help, we'll finalize, finish up the series that we started a couple of weeks ago here from Luke chapter 4, speaking about the purpose of Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah who came. Luke chapter 4, verse number 16, where we have been over the last several weeks We'll pick up there again in verse 16, and we'll read down through verse 21. The scripture says, He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Esaias. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him, And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Now we know that when Jesus came to this earth, he had a specific purpose. There was a reason for him coming. And we, of course, are familiar with the fact that he came ultimately to be the sacrifice for our sins. To die in our place on the cross, to be buried, and then to rise again showing that he has the power over sin, death, and hell. And because of that, we have hope of relationship with God, of our sins being forgiven, of being reconciled to God. But of course, in Luke chapter 4, people were not yet familiar with the purpose of Jesus coming. And it's significant that as he came to the synagogue there in Nazareth, the place where he was raised, he was given the opportunity to read from the scriptures and from the book of Isaiah... This scripture, which is a well-known messianic prophecy about the messenger of the Lord, he takes this prophecy and then applies it to himself. In the last several messages, we've talked about how Jesus came so that he could preach the gospel to the poor. In what way did he preach the gospel to spiritually impoverished people? Did he bring good news to people? Well, we've seen that he was sent to heal the brokenhearted, those who are crushed by sin. Jesus came to restore them. He came to preach deliverance to the captives, to give people freedom from the bondage of sin that can captivate them and keep them held down. He's come to recover sight to the blind and to give people spiritual vision so that we can see things as they truly are, rather than our eyes being blinded by the enemy of this world. Now, you'll notice the last phrase in verse 18, describing his purpose of preaching the gospel to the poor, says he has come to set at liberty them that are bruised. And this phrase is actually a poetic technique. It's a form of repetition. He's actually incorporating two of the earlier aspects of preaching the gospel to the poor, which we've already spoken about, and incorporating them together. In other words, he's saying, what I said I was coming to do, this is exactly what I've come to do. And so for that purpose, because it's really a repetition of what we've already dealt with, 
This idea of setting at liberty we dealt with when we looked at the phrase to preach deliverance to the captives. The idea of those who are bruised is synonymous with those who are brokenhearted, who need healing. And Jesus came to minister to people, to give them real spiritual, eternal hope. So it's a repetition. And we're going to just pass on to verse 19 this morning. And I want you to think with me about this phrase, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And then I want you to think about Jesus' statement a little bit after this, after he handed the scroll back to the minister. And he said in verse 21, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. What is Jesus communicating when he says that he has come to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. With that in your mind this morning, I'd like to speak to you on this topic, the time is now. The time is now. Jesus came to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Now that word year is very interesting because it is a mark of time. It's also interesting that this message is landing on New Year's Day, when we are starting a new year. We've marked something. I was messaging with my mom this morning, and she wished me a happy new year. By the way, how many of you stayed up to ring the new year in last night? Raise your hands. All right, I'm watching all of you very closely this morning (laughs) to make sure you don't fall asleep. I, well, I just don't stay up till midnight anymore, even if I want to. My eyes close all on their own, so I was not awake. But this morning when I got up, I had several people who sent me messages wishing me a happy new year. My mom was one of those, and of course, they're a few hours ahead of us there in Africa. And I said something to her about how quickly the last year went by. And she agreed, yeah, it seems like it was over very quickly. And here we are in a new year, getting ready to start a new year. We use years to mark the progression of time. We speak about, for instance, our age, how many years old we are, and we mark that from the point of our birth to whatever point we're at right now, I'm this many years old. Now, when you're younger, you say things like, I'm five and a half years old. But once you get to 45, you say, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm 29 going on something else. Because we don't want to admit the progression of time. We have a difference of perspective, don't we? When Jesus says he has come to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, he is making an indication of something about time. When we go to the scriptures to look at time and to understand what time is, it's a very interesting study. And this morning we're going to look at several verses And so I hope you have your Bible with you because it'll be helpful to you. First of all, we want to consider the perspective of time. From a biblical perspective, what is time? What does this mean? Well, it helps us to understand, first of all, that as far as time is concerned, God is eternal. And God is unrestricted by time. So we, we are time and space creatures. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But God is unique from us. God is not in any way restricted by time. In fact, one of his names is he is the eternal God. 
You could, if you want to, turn over to Isaiah chapter 57. Isaiah chapter 57. I'm going to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 33, a couple of verses that pertain to this subject. Isaiah chapter 57, if you're there, look at verse 15. The scripture says about our God, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. But notice there in verse 15, He is described as the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity. Now, we inhabit time and space, but God inhabits eternity. And in this way, he's different from us. uh, in, In Deuteronomy 33, where I turned, verse 27 describes God this way, "...the eternal God is thy refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms." And he shall thrust out the enemy from before thee and shall say, destroy them. And in that context, God is promising that he's going to deliver Israel from their enemies. And the basis of his promise is this. God is making this promise and God is an eternal God. He is the eternal God. Therefore, he can make this promise. God is unique from us because he is the eternal God. In fact, the proper name of God, which is used throughout the Old Testament, is the name Jehovah. And that name or title, that description of God, means I am that I am. And the idea of that is that God always has been and he always will be. God is, he is ageless. He doesn't, he doesn't get old like we do. Uh, if, you, if you look at pictures much of your family and you look back and every once in a while you know on our phones we have this feature where a picture will pop up and it'll be a memory from some time and you look at it oh oh, wow look at that and and it's always cute when it's the kids oh look what they used to look like and think about what they look like now and then you see yourself and you say whoa I'm getting old I'm aging see that never happens to God because he is eternal He is without time. That means God always has existed, always will exist, no beginning, no end. So when we talk about time, understand that God is eternal. Understand, second of all, that God is the one who created time. In Genesis chapter 1, turn back there with me, Genesis chapter 1, God is the one who designed time. He's the one who created the whole concept and declared it to be. Right on the first day of creation, the Bible says in verse 3 that God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. Now, some people will tell you that Genesis 1 is theoretical or metaphorical and that what is being described in Genesis 1 are epochs of time. They are 
They are periods of time that last for thousands or perhaps millions of years whereby God brought the world into existence. That idea or that, that uh, interpretation of Genesis 1 is often referred to as theistic evolution. But the truth is that the scripture is very clear and you can see that, that God says plainly in verse 5, the evening and the morning were the first day. And then in verse 8, the second day, the evening and the morning were the second day. And on and on through the whole chapter. So God goes to great pains to say that he established certain rules about the day pertaining to light and darkness. And then God said, this is a day. So what we observe as a day right now is the same as what a day was in Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, a 24-hour period. We all have the same length of days. So there's a particular day, and there's 24 hours, a certain number of minutes, a certain number of seconds in that day, and all of us are given that same allotment. And then when that day is over, it'll be the next day. But this is God's creation. God is the one who designed time, and then God is the one who placed man within the constraints of time. And that's the third thought that I want you to consider with me this morning, and that is that man is bound by time. Psalm 90, if you would turn over there with me real quickly, it'll be familiar to you. Psalm 90 and verse number 10 speaks a little bit about time. And it is interesting because it hasn't always been this way as far as the prescription of how long man would live. We know, for instance, in the early days of creation and just after the fall of man, men lived to be quite old. Uh, There was a man named Methuselah who lived to be 969 years old. We were talking about this the other evening. Thought, imagine what that would be like almost a thousand years old. And and my kids were having a hard time understanding that. I said, listen, guys, can you imagine you were born just after 1000 AD and you're still alive? Can you imagine what that would be like? Wow. But it's not like that anymore. Now, those men were also bound by time because eventually, even though their lives were longer, they came to a conclusion. But today, things are different. There's various reasons for this. Psalm 90, verse 10, tells us the days of our years are threescore years and ten. And that's the old English way of describing the number 70. A score is 20. So three times 20 is 60, plus 10 is 70. Threescore years and ten, that is what God says the days of our years are. And if by reason of strength they be fourscore years or 80 years old, yet is their strength labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Now, here's the bound of time or the way that God puts boundaries on our life. Generally speaking, God says that the average person is going to live 70 years. And if you have extraordinary health and you live to be 80 there still is going to be a lot of sorrow and difficulty and problems in your life. Now, I'm not asking for a show of hands, but if you think about that as the bounds of your life, 
there's probably a few folks in the auditorium who are thinking, wait, this is getting a little uncomfortable because I am 70 or 75 or I, I am 80 or I've surpassed 80. What does that mean? It means that you're coming close to the end. That's what it means. Now, I, I realize that that's not what everybody likes to hear. Like to hear, well, they'll find the secret of health. You'll probably live to be 3,000 years old, whatever, you know. No, the truth is that, and, and verse 12 tells us why God informs us about this. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Because if you are in your 50s, your 60s, your 70s, you realize, okay, I'm coming to the conclusion. I'm coming down to the end. There is a boundary that is set on my life. There is a limit. I was born and I'm going to die. Man is bound by time. God is not bound by time, but we are bound by time. We are bound by the fabric of time which makes up our lives. God gives us a certain prescription that will be less for some, more for others. We can take away time from our life by our own sinfulness and our rebellion against God. We could cut our life shorter than that which God has determined, but none of us can extend our life any longer by any natural or human means than what God has declared that it's going to go. There's no way. You are are not going to be able to say, Well, you know, I can live much longer if I just drink a lot of carrot juice. That's going to help me to live longer than what God said. No, the truth is you're going to live the the time that God gives to you, whether you drink carrot juice or not. So my motto is that why drink carrot juice when you could eat ice cream if it's not going to make a difference? And just to point out that I could actually shorten my life by making unwise decisions and eating too much ice cream. So that's the reason why that is not valid. But I had to throw it in there because I knew some of you would appreciate it. You know, it is sobering to us that we are bound by time. And what's even more sobering is that we really have no idea how long that time is. We think we have an idea, and there's a general prescription that's placed here in verse 10, but the truth is our life is so fragile that Any one of us could go out of this building today and never come back here. Or next time we come back here, we would come back in a casket for a funeral. See, that's how fragile our life is. And we think, well, I'm, I'm full of vitality. I'm full of life. I'm healthy. I'm strong. But actually, life is fragile. And because we're bound by time, we must pay attention to time. So God is eternal. He's unrestricted by time. God is the one who created time, and then God placed the boundaries, and we are bound by time. God is not bound by that. But then a fourth truth, as we try to get the right perspective about time, is that God works and relates with man in time and space. And this is incredible, to think that the eternal God comes and he interacts with us in time and space. This is seen all through human history as God dealt with man. God was dealing with men. He would intersect with their lives, men like Abraham and Noah and David and Moses, the the prophets. They they interacted with God. God came and he, 
He met them at the place where they were in their life right at that moment. He communicated something to them and he related with man. God is still doing that. God is still relating to man in time and space. We are time and space creatures right now, so we cannot step across into eternity and relate to God that way. But God has come to us and he relates to us in time and space. This is particularly seen in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. As God the Son became man, entered this world, he entered the time and space continuum, allowed himself to be bounded by time, confronted death, and as a man died for our sins. Think about that. That is an incredible truth that God would willingly submit himself to death, which is ultimately the consequence of sin. He himself did not have sin, and yet he, he willingly served us. He willingly came to us to become a sacrifice in our place so that we could see that God, who is far off from us, has come near. And why is this? Well, Titus chapter 1 and verse number 2 tells us something about this. Titus chapter 1 and verse 2 In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. Now think about this for just a moment, the perspective of time. You and I are bound by time in our body, but we have an eternal soul. And that eternal soul is going to exist somewhere forever. And God, in interacting with man and, and, and coming into time and space, has communicated this message that there is hope for us to have eternal life, to have relationship with God, which goes beyond the time and space continuum. That's the perspective of time. Now, remember, Jesus said, this day... So now I want you to think about, as Jesus was calling attention to this scripture and then taking it upon himself, there's a second thing about time that I want you to think about, and that is the prophecy of the time. Because there was a special time that God predicted from the beginning of the world to help man understand that there was a solution coming for man's problem. The scripture says about Jesus in Galatians 4 and verse 4 that when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. And what is being communicated in Galatians 4 and 4 when it says that Jesus came in the fullness of the time or when the fullness of the time was come... He came, you understand that what is being communicated is that Jesus came at exactly the right time. Even though he is the eternal God, he entered time and space and he did not make a mistake. He came at exactly the time that he should have come. Now, the time of Jesus' coming was predicted all through the Old Testament by God. God would speak through the prophets. 
all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, when man rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden, God made a promise as he was speaking to the serpent that he was cursing. He says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. In other words, there's a time coming when there will be one born of a woman who is going to bruise the head or crush the head of the serpent. Satan is going to be crushed by the power of this one who would come. All the way back in Genesis 3, God predicted it. All through the scriptures then in the Old Testament, predictions were made about the coming of this Messiah. Isaiah 7, 14, hundreds of years before the coming of Christ. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. We find that Emmanuel means God with us. And this is fulfilled in the birth of Jesus Christ. In Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 2, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. There's a prediction that light is coming into the world. Later, Jesus would say of himself, I am the light of the world. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Again, another assurance that Jesus would come, that the one would come, and he would come at exactly the right time. We could look at many other verses this morning. For the sake of time, we'll suffice with those. But understand that the time, the fullness of the time, the incarnation, the coming of Jesus into this world is, a, is the pivotal event in all of human history. There is a reason that even our calendar turns on this event. And I know in recent years, there's been an attempt to step away from the significance of Christ by renaming the meaning of A.D. to now we're supposed to say C.E., the common era. But I'm not sure if you've noticed that most people haven't changed. Because, well... All of human history turns on the coming of Jesus Christ. Everything before his coming is before Christ. Everything after his coming is Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. There's a reason that our calendar is structured that way. There's a reason that all of human history focuses on this time because the intersection of the eternal God with man in time and space is the most significant event in human history. There has never been anything that is more important than that which has happened. Now, the perspective of time and the prophecy of the time of Christ's coming, but then notice the proclamation of the time. And go with me back to our text where we started in Luke chapter 4, and I want you to consider what Jesus said. See, in verse 19, he said he had come to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. When would this preaching take place? When would he begin to declare the acceptable year of the Lord is here, the time that God has predicted, the time that has been prophesied, 
the time that has been looked for, the time of the coming of the Messiah. When is this going to be? Well, he goes on, and after he hands the scroll back, in verse 21, he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. This day. Right now, Jesus says, is the day. So you, you must understand, he's talking to people who are anticipating the coming of the Messiah. They're looking forward to the time when the Messiah will come. This is a major part of their culture, talking about the coming of the Messiah. And Jesus says, he's here. This day, right now, this is fulfilled. You need not wait any longer. The time is now. The proclamation of the time. Over and over again, Jesus claimed to be God. Those who tell you Jesus never claimed to be God, they've obviously not read their Bible. If you go and read your Bible, you'll find in the Gospels that Jesus frequently claimed to be God. He clearly indicated that he is God. And he said, this day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. Over and over, Jesus proclaimed the acceptable year of the Lord. In his ministry, Jesus was calling attention to himself, and he was saying, I am come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus wanted people to understand that there was coming at a time when he was going to die, when he was no longer going to be there. He was going to become a sacrifice for sins. He spoke frequently about this sacrifice. Jesus proclaimed that now is the time. John the Baptist also proclaimed the time because when Jesus went walking by on that day in Judea as John was in the wilderness teaching and preaching and he saw Jesus walking by and he looked and he pointed and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. What John the Baptist was saying in so many words was, The time is now. He is here. All of the prophecies have come to bear on this moment He is the one that we have been looking for. He is the one who takes away the sin of the world. Not only did Jesus proclaim the time and John the Baptist proclaimed the time, but the apostles proclaimed the time. And one of the clear declarations is found in 1 John chapter 1. John the apostle, as an old man, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was pinning these words... And he says something very significant in 1 John chapter 1, verse number 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Do you notice what John says? The life was manifested. And we have seen it and bear witness 
and show unto you that eternal life. What is he talking about? He's talking about Jesus, who is that eternal life. Jesus is the source of life. And the apostles were constantly declaring, and we can find it in the book of Acts, and then we can find it in the epistles. They were declaring over and over and over again, all the prophecies have been fulfilled. Jesus is the one that we've been looking for. The time is now. Over and over. And multitudes of people began to believe that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. That, in fact, the time is now. That salvation has been provided. And multitudes of people have turned to Christ and become followers of Christ. And their lives have been changed. And they've been given relationship with God as God has entered time and space continuum and has given them the opportunity to enjoy eternal life. The proclamation of the time. But now, as we think about the words of Jesus, and I want you to just flip back there. I hope you still have your finger or a marker in Luke chapter 4. And think about the implications of Jesus' statement in verse number 21. This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. What does that mean? Well, it means that they have some responsibility. There there is a prescription for these people. They need to understand that Jesus is not just speaking nice religious words and platitudes and discussing things that can be argued back and forth. Jesus is making a clear declaration, the time is now. And when the time is now, it means there is something that must be done. Sometimes I I have a bad habit of saying something to one of my kids like, "Um, if you want to, maybe you could wash the dishes. Now, it may come as a surprise to you, but those kind of statements rarely accomplish the dishes getting done. Because, I mean, who wants to do the dishes? And they tend to interpret quite literally... If you want to, I don't want to, so why do the dishes? And and my wife will help me with this sometimes, and she'll say, "Um, are you making a suggestion, or do you actually want them to do it? And I'll say, oh, yeah, I, I guess I wasn't clear in that. And so then I might say, go do the dishes. And then for added emphasis, I might say, now. Because if I just say, go do the dishes, it might be interpreted to mean sometime between now and next Sunday I should do the dishes. But if I say now, now what has happened is, because we are time and space creatures, right? I have put a boundary on what I expect to be done. Does that make sense to you who are parents at least? Maybe some of you have to speak this clearly as well. I'm not trying to throw my kids under the bus. I think they're pretty normal kids. And probably this is the same way in a lot of your homes. Now, what I want you to understand is that when God speaks of the time, he always speaks in terms of today. Now. 
there is an urgency to the time. There is a prescription. To see this urgency, I want you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And I hope you've stayed with me on this journey. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse number 2. For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee, or helped, or aided thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now, compare that to what Jesus said at the conclusion as he was reading from the book of Isaiah to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And 2 Corinthians 6.2 says, Now is the acceptable time. Now is the time accepted. Now is the day of salvation. So what is the prescription of time? Well, it's very simple. Because you and I are time and space creatures, and our life has a boundary the outer end of which we don't know exactly when it is. It is imperative that when we have understood the message of good news, the gospel, the truth, that we can be reconciled to God and forgiven of our sins, that at the moment that we comprehend that message, that time is now, right now. That is the time that God expects a response of obedience. The Bible speaks about the fact that you and I must obey the gospel. And if we don't obey the gospel, we are going to face the flaming fire of God taking vengeance upon our sins. It is imperative that we obey the gospel. And when should we obey? We should obey now. Understand that when Jesus is speaking about the acceptable year of the Lord, and he says, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears, what he is pointing out is that there is a responsibility in that moment that is expected from the people who have heard these things. Sadly, and we won't go back to the passage, the people did not respond well. For the most part, those people heard what Jesus said and they were offended at what he said. And they actually tried, they thrust him out of the synagogue and they tried to take his life at that moment. But it was not yet the time for him to give up his life. So he was taken away and those people lost their opportunity to be reconciled to God. You see, when God deals with man... It is on a timetable. Remember I said that God deals with man when he intersects our lives in a time and space continuum. God is eternal, but you and I are time and space beings. And when God deals with your heart, that is the time to respond to God. But because we tend to have a different perspective of time than God does, we tend to say, I'll get to that sometime. I'll deal with that one day. Definitely, one of these days, I'm going to 
do business with God. One of these days, I'm going to heed the call to obey the gospel. One of these days, I'm going to repent and believe on Jesus Christ. One of these days, I'm going to get right with God. And God says, no, not one of these days. Now. Today. And you say, well, but I've seen people who've had chances and more chances. And and, and it's true. Because God is merciful. And he's long-suffering. But friend... I guess I got a little animated there. Listen to me. It is urgent. Urgent. The gospel is not something to get around to when you feel like it. To say, well, I'll live my life and do the things I want to do. And then one day before I die, I'll get right with God and go to heaven. That way I could have the best of both worlds. How do you know that God is going to intersect with your life and deal with your heart at that point and that you will have another opportunity to heed the call of the proclamation of time. If God is graciously dealing with your heart, now is the time to respond, not later. You say, Pastor, you're putting a lot of pressure on. I, I really am not. I really am not. I'm just speaking to you in terms of what the Scripture says. And it is absolutely true that people will say, later, 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 later. And they will wait until it is too late. The moment that your soul crosses over from time and space to eternity, it is officially too late. You have waited too long. You can no longer go back and respond to the gospel. Waiting for eternity is too late. Now, the message about Jesus is a glorious, good news message. There is no doubt about it that he came to do good things in people's lives. To give them life, to restore them, to forgive them, to give them sight, to heal their brokenness. All of these things are true. And he desperately wants to work in every one of your lives. But if you don't respond, if you coldly turn away and you say, another day. I'll hear you. Another day, I'll listen. Then, friend, you may find that that other day never comes and you never have an opportunity to get right with God. Let me address something that I think is a major problem and a major hindrance to people coming to Christ today. And that is this idea I want to live my life now, and then later I'll give God the rest of my life or what is left. And, and here's the problem with that. It is this idea that you, that you have that you think you know better how to live your life than God does. And, and you're convinced in your heart that if you actually give him your life, that he's going to mess it all up. And so that, because of that, you feel like, I've got to take control right now, and I've got to do the things that I want to do, and I've got to fit them in, and then a little later, I'll trust God with what is left, and I'll come to him, and he can have what's left over. 
And, and what is at the root of that is actually a totally false idea about God. You have convinced yourself through the temptation of Satan that God is trying to ruin your life. That's actually what Satan tempted Adam and Eve with and convinced them of, and it's not true. He's not trying to ruin your life. However, I have it on the authority of Scripture as well as the record of human history that you are guaranteed to ruin your life. If you take it and do the things that you want to do, you will mess it up bad. But you think in your mind that you are smarter than God. And so what is it that is hindering you from coming to Him now? It is your pride and arrogance, thinking that you are above God and that God doesn't know as much as you know. And I'm going to admonish you today and urge you and plead with you to turn from that arrogance and that pride and wave the white flag of surrender and say, God, I am tired of trying to be my own God. I need you. But I want you to understand today that today, right now, is the day of salvation. To someone, and maybe to more than one someone in this room, this is your chance. This is your opportunity. At this very moment, undoubtedly, the Holy Spirit is troubling your heart and is convicting you of sin and righteousness and judgment and is informing you that you are not ready to stand before God, that if your life ended today, it would be too late and your eternal soul would be condemned. This Holy Spirit is convincing you of that right now. And right now is the moment that God wants you to respond. And if that's you today, can I urge you, why not come to Jesus right now? Now this morning, I am not asking you to come to me or to write your name on a card or to make a commitment to the church. I'm not going to ask you to put something in the offering plate or sign somebody's Bible or have somebody sign your Bible. What I am asking you to do is what the Bible says you must do. I am asking you to come to Christ who alone can save. Let go of your sin. Turn aside from your rebellion against God and you're trying to live your own life and grab a hold of Jesus and what Jesus has done for you in his death, burial, and resurrection. Believe on him and put your confidence in him. And today, on the authority of Scripture, I'll tell you that if you'll do that, today can be the day of salvation. Don't delay. Yes, Jesus came to give salvation. But yes, there is a need for you and I to respond to that offer and to that message and to come to him today. This is the day. It is time right now to come to Christ.